Good morning. It's 930, 68 degrees in St. Louis. I'm time now for the live Bible study class from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere. Again, uh, Dr. Klo is somewhere in Israel, uh, we hope, uh, and uh, should be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend for the world, but, uh, well, for our nation, I should say, but we are going to be getting ready for next Sunday. Uh, we're in Acts, ready to begin chapter 2, and this will be our preparation for Pentecost uh, Day, which is a week from today. Uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer. I'd like to use the final verse of one of Martin Franzman's hymns uh, as our opening prayer. O Spirit, who didst once restore thy church, that it might be again the bringer of good news to men, breathe on thy cloven church once more, that in these gray latter days there may be men whose life is praise, each life a high doxology to Father, Son, and unto thee. Amen. Now, uh, before we can begin chapter 2, uh, because it's so important for our whole reading of Acts, I want to ask you what Dr. Kloa did with the question of the apostles in chapter 1, verse 6. I know it's dangerous, especially with this group, to back up at all. This may set us off another decade or so. Uh, but I need to know uh, what he you how you're understanding that question of the apostles there uh, before we move into what follows. So could anyone give us a, a quick recap? Verse, which verse? Verse 6. The yes. We talked about several aspects, but it was the idea of being sent and being sent for a particular purpose that stood out. Okay. Okay, so in terms of what it means to be an apostle, yes, that's correct. But going back even further to this question they ask, uh, back in verse 6, um, where the ESV reads, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the question I want to know how you understand it. Yes, please. But. He, had, uh, he talked about kingdom promises, and uh, he went back to Genesis 12 and talked about the orders to Abraham, divine initiative, uh, uh, and uh, God's faithfulness. I don't know, just uh, a number of things. Uh, Israel's responsibility to all nations uh, coming through that. And then he talked about... Uh, a verse from First Peter on uh, uh, actions by God uh, as being a kingdom uh, promise. When he said, you're a nation and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. I don't, I don't remember an awful lot about that. I'm just checking my notes. Okay. That sounds pretty good. But uh, I don't mean to just quiz you on uh, whether you were paying attention in class or not. But... Just in your own reading, how do you understand this question? Is it a good question or a bad question? In my own reading, I, I, you know, the Lord was going to 
Okay, that's why I wanted to do a quick recap, uh, because that's the way we almost all read this question. But I've been uh, trying to make a case that that's not quite fair to the apostles to read it that way. Um, so a couple of things stand out. Uh, first of all, in the end of Luke's gospel, what does he say the risen Lord Jesus did for these men in terms of their minds? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So as Luke is telling the story moving from cross through resurrection to ascension and Pentecost, there is a moment of great revelation and understanding that happens. But it happens before we get to Pentecost Day. It happens back there with the risen Lord in the upper room. And as we begin then Acts, Luke tells us about this period of 40 days in which Jesus was doing what with these men? He was teaching them. And what in particular was he teaching them about? How well, he was the subject of the Old Testament. He, he was okay. the Old Testament, essentially. Yeah, now that's kind of how he summarizes it at the end of Luke, where he says all that was written in Moses and the Psalms and the prophets was written about me. And he showed them why he had to do the things he had suffered. Um, but in the beginning of Acts, Luke simplifies that and just gives us a one-word summary. It says he was talking to them about what? The kingdom. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. So that's been the subject of their conversation for these 40 days. And when you get to verse 6, they ask a question about what? The kingdom. So if they still don't get it, this is quite serious, right? It means that all of Jesus' teaching and ministry with them has accomplished what? Practically nothing. I mean, maybe they're poised and ready for, for the next thing to happen, but they still don't understand anything. And we won't go through uh, all the reasons that I think we can say this, but... But if they have a proper understanding of the kingdom of God, if Jesus' teaching has been effective with them, then they're asking about something that God is going to be doing, right? You said kingdom is God's activity. It's his being king among us. Uh, it's his claiming his world for himself. Uh, if they've understood Jesus at all, that's what they're asking him about. And they're not asking if Israel is going to take over the world but they're asking if Israel will have any role in God's work of claiming the world for himself. Now, why would they think Israel had lost a role in that kingdom? Okay, Israel had just rejected, and not only rejected, but executed the Messiah that God had sent to Israel. So their question makes very good sense as a question that understands what God is about in Jesus Christ uh, and shows the concern they have over their current situation. 
Would God have been completely within his rights to reject Israel from any part in his future plans? Well, certainly, humanly speaking, we'd have to say yes. They had disavowed any relationship with Jesus, right? Who is the king they claimed? We have no king but Caesar, right? In their rejection of the Messiah, they had been quite complete. Uh, we want nothing to do with this man. Uh, and I still think this is a very powerful image, but uh, part of the aspect of crucifixion, part of why it was such a horrific thing, is that what you're doing by lifting a man up off the ground is essentially you're giving him back to God and saying, we want no part with this man. He has nothing to do with us. You take him and do whatever you want, but don't punish us because of what he's done. Uh, so you hoist him up off the ground uh, as if you're offering him back to God to, uh, to take and uh, do with as he will. So if we read Acts uh, in more of a, a sort of unity, a, a continuum with the Gospel of Luke, we see these men who have finally come to understand uh, what Jesus is doing, what God is doing in Jesus, uh, what God's will is uh, that Jesus has said he has come to accomplish. Uh, and they ask a question about what now? Tim. Yeah, related to the Gospel of Luke. It's not in Mark. Okay? Right. So the disciples in Luke are portrayed as having much more understanding than they are in Mark. Now this is important yes. for this particular question. And I think if we go back to Luke 22.30 Okay. Luke 22.30 This actually relates and starting with verse uh, actually starting where Jesus says, you're the ones who have remained with me in my trials or temptations, and I am entrusting to you just as my Father entrusted to me the kingdom. And then it says in 30, in order that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now, given that background, see, mm -hmm. I, I think that's sort of the, the, the real textual background to this, is to say, uh, all right, the people of God are going to finally come to a triumph here. <clears throat> is this the time? And look at verse 7 of Acts 1. The next thing, what Jesus doesn't say is this. Oh, you foolish and hard of heart. Don't you understand all the time I've been with you? No. Mm -hmm. He says something like this. You know, not a bad question. Uh, but it's not up to you to know the times and seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. In fact, he doesn't even know. It's within the, it, it's, it's within the Father's purview. So his response is actually a quite positive response, I would say, yes. to their question, saying, logical question, can't give you the answer. 
Our Lord was not afraid to rebuke and correct. And if you think just back to the Emmaus account, right? With those two disciples, foolish and slow of heart to believe. So, so if there was a mistake, he wanted to correct it. That was showing his love for his disciples. Um, now, since you're here, let me ask, if you were to compare Mark and Luke where Mark ends... Wouldn't you say the disciples are roughly in the same place? The reason we see more understanding in Luke is that Luke continues the story further. Yes. Yes. So that in all four Gospels, the empty tomb doesn't save anybody, right? No one looks in the tomb and says, oh, now we understand everything. So it's when Jesus appears and, and teaches, instructs, and the emphasis in Mark, then, is when the young man points to the promise. So he right. says, don't you remember, you know, mm-hmm. there he's going before you into Galilee, and was, as he told you. So right. it's always put back to the word. Right. There's this strong sense of recalling people to the word. That's where you gain uh, the understanding. Uh, so if the reason this is important is because according to a, a traditional view, uh, say, a view even like the one taught by John Calvin, that this uh, question is so mistaken that every word uh, represents a mistake. That's kind of his approach to the question. Then what brings them to an understanding of what Jesus is all about? Okay, it's the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost, right, that transforms them. But then for us Lutherans, this is a real problem because Jesus is teaching his proclamation of the word, uh, his bringing them back to the promise again and again and again accomplishes nothing. But the spirit who comes upon the apostles apart from any real proclamation that we see in the text now suddenly transforms these men from Uh, misunderstanding cowards into courageous preachers. Well, that's not consistent with anything we see anywhere else in the Bible. And it creates a real problem as we read from Luke through Acts and then to understand what is the church today. Uh, So that's why I wanted to take just a few minutes and go back to this question. Um, You can see at the top of the handout the way I like to paraphrase this. Uh, Lord, are you at this time restoring to Israel her role in your work of reclaiming your world under your divine kingship? Uh, They had every reason to believe that role had been lost forever by Israel's own betrayal and rejection. But they also now had been brought to understand what God is at work uh, in accomplishing through his son, uh, our Lord Jesus. And so, as uh, Dr. Veltz pointed out, the question really has two parts. Are you going to do something and are you going to do it now? And in terms of the now, Jesus says it's not for you to know. Uh, But in terms of the, are you going to do something, what's his response? You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, which we often too quickly take to mean, 
I'm commissioning you to go out and preach the gospel. But I think it also means, especially in this context, Lord, are you going to do something? Watch and see. Go where I send you and you'll see what I'm going to accomplish. And that's what we see happening again and again in Acts. Right? Um, apostles, preachers, not wanting to go to these places, thinking, well, why would we go there? Why would we talk to those people? And they get there and suddenly they discover, um, well, as Peter says, God is not a respecter of persons, that this gospel is for everyone. That question. Uh, yes, he does uh, tell them that they are to wait, right? Uh, and, uh, and that they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right, they'll be clothed with power from on high. Now, that's the question we want to look at now. What does that mean? If it doesn't mean that this is the thing that transforms them uh, from even non-believers into believers, or at least from from cowards into brave and honorable men. Uh, so immediately after that, well, not immediately, because they still stand there for a second, kind of dumbfounded, and the angel has to tell them to go back to Jerusalem. But as you talked about last Sunday, then what do they do? They restore their ranks, right? So they reform uh, this group of 12 leaders uh, who will now be prepared ready, poised, uh, to go and uh, do this work uh, that, God, that Jesus has promised them uh, they will do. Question. Based on what you just said, then does it Well, that's a good question, and I think uh, we could say, uh, although that's not necessarily assumed, that there's clearly a parallel there, right? And uh, certainly a parallel between Jonah as a somewhat reluctant prophet and the reception the message gets and what we see happening in the rest of Acts. So, yeah, I think that's a, a very good point uh, to make. Well, let's, uh, as we head into chapter 2, let's just think, uh, first of all, in some uh, general terms. And I want to ask, uh, what associations uh, come to your mind when you think of Pentecost? Uh, what happened? What do you do on Pentecost? What does the church do? Uh, what's it all about? Easy acquisition of foreign languages. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, well, a lot more could be said about that. <laughs> yes. And uh, fervently prays for it instead of studying, as he should. Other things. Okay. Now, you said we, right? So you make a personal connection with what's happening in the text. It's not just something long ago, but something that affects us too. Um, anything else that comes to mind? I don't actually know what happens at St. Paul's on Pentecost. Rare red. Rare red? 
It's not confirmation, though, is it? Or is it? Okay, some churches have Pentecost as their confirmation day. Well, the, the surprise, the surprise that the Lord did this in such a way. And then also, um, I'm always somewhat puzzled, because even in the verses before this, they're of one accord, they're praying. It seems like the Spirit is still is working among His people even then. So there's, there's always been a mystery, an element of mystery about Pentecost to me. Mm -hmm. And it seems to get worse and not better as I get older. Okay. So. Well, let's see if we can reverse that trend uh, a little bit. I can't promise, wouldn't even want to take away all the mystery. Um, but let's uh, make it a, a day you can enjoy. Well, the, the miracle of faith that so many people suddenly believed. And, and it's, uh, I think one of the things Dr. Cloa talked about is and maybe, maybe you introduced it, is the fact that, that uh, uh, Acts is about Jesus' work. It was the beginning of Jesus' work that his first part is, and now he is really working. And you see far more people coming to faith in one day than any uh, activity that he did. Okay. Um, of course, he did impact thousands on several different occasions, uh, but we don't get the report that all those thousands were added to their number. Um, so a couple of very important points there. Remember the beginning of the book says the Gospel of Luke was about the things Jesus began to do and to teach. Uh, we need to read this book as a, an account of what Jesus continues to do. Uh, he's still the one accomplishing these things. Uh, when I think of Pentecost, it's uh, one of the few moments when I feel like growing up in the Midwest perhaps has put me at a bit of a disadvantage. Uh, because when I think of Pentecost, I think what time of year? Spring. What's happening outside? Yes. And rising water uh, in the basement. Uh, we think of this as the time of new life, new growth. The world is coming back to life after its death of winter. Uh, everything's turning green. Now, this spring's a little early, uh, even for us here, but I was a couple hours north of uh, here in central Illinois. So, so uh, end of May was usually when it was really starting to feel like spring again. Um, and my pastors reinforced this by telling me Sunday after Pentecost, what color does the church turn to? Green, because this is the time of new life. And some people will refer to Pentecost as the birthday of the church. It's a new birth, new life. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I realized that's about as far removed from the biblical idea of Pentecost as you can get. Uh, many people talk about this as the first Pentecost, but it wasn't, was it? Pentecost was an Old Testament festival that's been around since the time of Exodus. Uh, now, it wasn't always called Pentecost. Uh, it was called, as you can see on your handout there, the Feast of Weeks, or more importantly, the Feast of Harvest. 
So I always thought of Pentecost as planting and sprouting and budding. But Pentecost is a harvest festival. Now it's the first harvest festival, the earliest one. Uh, it's the time when the earliest crops are ready to be harvested. Uh, and why was it celebrated with such importance and joy? Because you hope this first harvest is what? Is good, abundant, uh, and then serves as a promise for what? The later harvest, the whole ingathering that happens uh, on the festival we know of as tabernacles or the festival of booths. Uh, where people would actually sent, set up these little tents out in the fields, uh, in the earliest days, that is, uh, because they were working around the clock to try to get the crops in on time. Um, so knowing that, uh, I think, helps uh, change our perspective of how we should understand this day in terms of the story. Um, now, just to uh, fill in a little first biblical and then historical information. Uh, I don't think we'll take the time to look up these passages from Exodus, uh, but you have them there on your handout, chapter 23 and again chapter 34, which talk about the three um, sometimes called mandatory or obligatory feasts, uh, the three festivals that everyone was supposed to come back uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, now in New Testament days, um, people had sort of reinterpreted that to mean if you lived sort of within uh, Judea and Palestine, you would try to return. But if you were far away, like in Rome or, or uh, Babylonia, you may make this pilgrimage uh, once during your lifetime but to, to try to make it once. Um, uh, Joseph Fitzmaier talks about uh, several Pentecosts that show up uh, in the uh, material from Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and you get this uh, picture of successive harvests being brought in and each one is sort of a measure um, and promise, a foreshadowing of things to come. So you had uh, first the earliest grain, then uh, new wine, and then the new oil. And these would follow each other, um, you know, few weeks apart, um, and it's significant then that uh, new wine is, of course, one of the things mentioned. Um, this is the, the Beaujolais Nouveau, right, of the uh, biblical world. So the first one, that if hopefully it's good, and hopefully uh, the rest of that vintage will be fine as well. Um, so we do see that pattern, um, and I want to come back to that next Sunday. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what happens on this particular day. And let me ask someone to read for us verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2. Jim, please. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay. Uh, first of all, um, 
I think many of us grew up in the days when you might see the first part of a movie released and then you'd have to wait several years to see the next part. Uh, I think, for instance, of the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, now, in your life, I think it was about three years have passed between part one and part two. But when the movie starts, you're right at what point? Right where movie one left off. And you have to remember what was going on then at that point in the story. I think when people start to read Acts, uh, too often uh, we forget uh, the time frame here. So again, uh, why do we call this day Pentecost? Where does the Pente come from? 50 days after the Passover, uh, which, of course, in this case, was pretty much 50 days after crucifixion and resurrection. So we're just a few short weeks from those momentous events at the end of Luke's Gospel. And it's important, not just for chapter 2, but really for uh, pretty much the first half of the book, to remember how close we are to the events uh, at the end of the Gospel. We're still in Jerusalem. The same characters are still there. Not just the same apostles, but the same Jewish authorities are in control. They didn't lose their power when Jesus rose from the dead. So they're still there. Uh, they're still watchful about this um, movement that's going to do things in the name of Jesus, the one that they sentenced, condemned, and crucified. Uh, so we're only 50 days away from those things. Um, can you remember what you did at Easter? Uh, I was trying to think what we did at Easter this year. I mean, it may seem like, well, that's quite a while ago. Uh, but has anyone lost a loved one within the past month? And that's still a pretty fresh memory, isn't it? It surprised me uh, when I lost my father how quickly the rest of the world moves on. And you think, that just happened moments ago. And it's still changing the way you think about everything. Uh, you see little things that remind you of that person. Well, uh, even if we can't quite remember what we had for Easter dinner this past uh, year, um, we can imagine that these events are still very fresh in the minds of the apostles and uh, the authorities in Jerusalem. And we'll see that uh, even uh, verified by the text here as we move into chapters 3 and 4 and so on. Okay, so, yes. Quick question. Your comment about a minute or so ago made me ask, made me ask this question. In the canonical order of the New Testament, mm -hmm. Now, that's an interesting question. Why aren't Luke and Acts put together in the New Testament? Um, and that's, uh, that's come up very often in questions about, are we really supposed to read Luke and Acts together or not? Uh, the only explanation I have is that the church early on grouped the four Gospels together because they wanted, uh, and these books circulated, published together, uh, they wanted the church to have this uh, complete, whole, uh, four-dimensional testimony uh, to Jesus Christ. But Luke is kind of the outlier of the other three, right? I mean, 
Well, most people think John stands out as different, but you're right in the sense Luke is unique in the sense he's the only one who continues the story this far. Uh, so the um, again, this is sort of reconstruction here, um, but Acts does form a kind of bridge between the story of Jesus and the material we see in the epistles. And that seems to be the way it functions uh, in the canonical arrangement. Jim. Now when Jeff returns, he'll be able to speak you know, more to this. But as far as I know, Luke and Acts never circulate together in any of the manuscript tradition. So as you say, yeah. the four Gospels circulate together as the Megalion, the big book. Mm -hmm. Or through three synoptics, sometimes John separate. Uh, but, but the synoptics always circulate together, and then Acts tends to circulate with the Catholic epistles, whereas the epistles of Paul stay together. Right. So I, I think the church is thinking more of the uh, kind of apologetic purpose of this as opposed to a literary Yeah, yeah and, and I, well, I don't know if it's ironic, but just interesting, even today, I haven't ever seen Luke and Acts published as a volume. Now, people have studied them together, um, and it is ironic that the, the sort of classic study of the unity of these two books got published in two volumes, one on Luke and one on Acts. So, so even there, uh, publishers have kept these two separate. Um, but narratively, you see the connections. now. I think it would be um, unfair to Acts to read it only from the vantage point of Luke. Certainly we start there, but we'll, I find, for instance, reading Luke and John and Acts together uh, is extremely enlightening. There are a lot of connections between Luke and John, um, and I encourage you to uh, you know, sort of keep an open mind to the way uh, for instance, how does Luke talk about the Spirit? How does John talk about the Spirit? How does Luke present Jesus, especially in his final days, uh, and uh, John as well? And I think you see a lot of similarity and theme between those two. Um, okay, very good question. Um, okay, let's... Uh, work here to set the stage, uh, and that's really what I was hoping to do this morning, uh, for Peter's message. Uh, so we'll talk about the things that happened, and then next Sunday we'll come back and hear Peter explain what he thinks is going on here. Um, so we may not uh, feel we answer all our questions today, but let's try to, to get to the right questions. Uh, so they were all together. Luke tells us in verse 1. Uh, who was all together? Who is the they? Okay, the disciples, uh, meaning how big of a group? About 120. Okay, and where are you coming up with that number? Okay, in chapter 1 we're told that they were gathered together there, about 120 total, 
uh, for the selection of Matthias. And apparently it was their custom now to continue to gather together. And you probably noted then, but that 120 also included what important people? Mary, the mother of Jesus, and perhaps even more surprisingly, his brothers, who had not been his followers during his ministry. In fact, um, both tried to have him uh, committed, apparently, and uh, killed, apparently. Uh, so they were not only sort of neutral, but uh, appeared to be opponents to Jesus at various times. Um, it's important to ask the question because we want to know uh, who the, each one of them is down in verse 3 and who the they all is down in verse 4. So most people say if you look at what comes before, you would naturally think of the 120 or a large group like that. If you look at what comes afterwards, then the apostles themselves, just the 12, are prominently featured, and you might think it's only talking about them. Um, it's interesting, already uh, back in uh, uh, antiquity, in the 4th uh, century, when John Chrysostom was preaching on this text, uh, he argued that the they were all together um, must have meant this larger group. And why? Okay. Right. So it could have been much larger than that, but we know a bigger congregation. Yeah. Well, and that Chrysostom says, how could Peter say, uh, how could he use Joel 2 as his text, uh, where it talks not only about male servants, but female servants? It talks not only about sons, but daughters. This seems to be a large and very mixed group. Uh, so that what happens here in this uh, beginning section in uh, Acts 2 is happening to the church, to that whole gathering of those uh, who believe in Jesus. I still think that's the most uh, natural way to read uh, 1 through 4, even though the focus is very quickly going to narrow down to, um, well, primarily Peter, uh, but Peter standing with the eleven. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the next question. Uh, where are they? It says they're gathered together in one place. Okay. Again, if you look at what comes before, the place where we're told they were gathering is what? The upper room. It's a house. Now, 120 seems like it would already be kind of pushing the limits of what a typical house might be able to hold, uh, even if you use the courtyard. Uh, but certainly, if you look at what happens afterward, by the time you get to thousands gathering uh, and a whole crowd hears a noise and comes together, now it seems to be in a much more public setting. And where will later scenes take place uh, in terms of the apostles' teaching? 
surprises some people, but the temple. They still go regularly to the temple. Um, I don't have a good answer for this one because Luke isn't very specific. And I think perhaps he doesn't want us to be very specific in the way we think about it either. Um, one way to, to address this is that they seem to start in a house and then spill out into the streets uh, and, uh, and finally gather in a public place where uh, many people can hear Peter. Um, but again, uh, Luke doesn't narrow it down and uh, is anxious to move on, and we probably should too. Jim. Well, Luke is, uh, well, I was going to say tricky, but that's not quite right. But Luke likes to use these words about fulfillment just when he's talking about a time, <clears throat> which sounds strange. How can a time be fulfilled? Uh, he seems to be saying that when this time arrives, much more is happening than just a day on the calendar. That this is fulfilling part of God's plan and purpose and promise. And so I would agree with you. It's pointing to much more than just, uh, it was Sunday, so they were having church. Um, but this is, again, heading toward a fulfillment, uh, a making full, a filling up uh, of what Pentecost was always supposed to be pointing to uh, and looking forward to. Um, uh, so... Uh, there's one other little word that's kind of interesting here, too, that I was, wanted to get back to, and that's the together, the hamu, which, oddly, this is the only place this occurs in Acts, and everywhere else you have homothumadon, uh, the sort of stronger word about unity, um, which is a variant here. So it, I'm still trying to decide uh, which really is the better reading here. But there's an expression of unity among this group, uh, which again is a change from what we see in the Passion narrative, right? Where they sort of every man for himself and they run in different directions. Uh, so this group is together. Uh, and uh, already in chapter 1, Luke had used that other word to describe them. Uh, they're united really by this single desire, this new purpose, this... Uh, this unity they have in Christ Jesus, that brings them together here again. Yes. So that's where this unity comes from. It's not that they've somehow figured out the magic formula. 
Uh, God has brought them together in this unity. Um, and uh, we'll learn later it's a unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay, then um, Luke tells us that three things happened that could be either seen and or heard. And we want to talk about those three things uh, briefly here this morning. So what was the first thing he mentions? Okay, a sound like a rushing wind. Uh, Well, we really don't need commentators to tell us uh, that wind and fire are typical symbols for the presence of whom? Of the Spirit, or at least of God uh, in general. There have been all sorts of places where God has appeared that have been accompanied by wind and uh, fire of some kind. We'll get to the fire in just a second. Um, This is also true, um, and here the commentaries are helpful in uh, pagan terms as well. So it wouldn't just be biblical readers who would think of this as as, uh, something at least mysterious, but perhaps God at work in this place. Um, Now, what exactly this means, uh, I think we're going to have to wait and let Peter tell us, at least look at his explanation before we come to any conclusions. Um, but some of you, I'm sure, know that the word for spirit uh, can also be wind, can also be breath. Um, but you might not know from looking at your English that this isn't that word here. Uh, and I'm, uh, again, trying to decide exactly what to uh, make of the difference. Um, I found that I think some of the Commentators uh, haven't perhaps read carefully enough, but uh, certainly in later Greek, the two words will be used as basically interchangeable. And they do come from the same verb, so they're, they're related in Greek. Um, what struck me as interesting is that if you look at the way this word is used in the Greek Old Testament, um, it's not typically connected with violent storms. But it's more often breath, either the breath of life in us, and so can be an indication of our sort of fragile mortality, or more typically the breath that God breathes into us uh, that brings life. Uh, And there are three verses that really struck me. Um, In uh, Job 26, verse 4, this breath is connected with speech. It's sort of like, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will show forth your praise. Uh, I can't praise God unless he puts the breath in my lungs. Uh, In Job 32, verse 8, and this seems to be a less obvious connection, uh, this breath of God is connected with teaching or with understanding. Uh, His breath in man is understanding. Uh, And uh, the third one is from Proverbs seven, probably the farthest removed connection, that this breath is connected with light. Uh, The breath of God is the light of man. Uh, And again, uh, that's, I think, extremely interesting in terms of of what we see here happening in Pentecost. 
so Luke does describe this as a violent uh, wind, but as, uh, as again, uh, some of the commentaries remind us, what is it that Luke says actually happens? What fills the house? It's the sound. So he just compares it to a wind, so he doesn't actually say a violent wind blew through the house. But um, which would scare you more? A violent wind rushing through the house or the sound of it when everything's perfectly still? I think maybe the latter would uh, uh, be a little more unnerving to me. But, um, which reminds me, I was going to mention this earlier, but... Uh, I was thinking as, you know, we try to understand these, these strange phenomena. Sometimes we're tempted to think the apostles somehow had an answer book or a guide to strange phenomena or something like that so that they would understand these things when they happened. And uh, I thought, if someone said, uh, wait here, Jim, you're going to be clothed with power from on high, uh, how would that make you feel exactly? Soup. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not sure I'd be sleeping very well, uh, wondering just exactly what does that mean, clothed with power from on high. Okay, so there was a sound, like a rushing wind, uh, I say like the mighty breath of God himself, uh, that fills the place, uh, and we do hear, see the word house here. Um, but, of course, the temple can be a house, too. So it doesn't really help us answer our question, where? Um, and then what happens? Okay, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, so here again, we see a lot of the same references to fire or light uh, as the... Um, symbol of the divine presence. Um, what do you think this was meant to symbolize or indicate? Divided tongues as of fire. And remember again, the fire is the comparison here. The burning bush. Okay, what would the connection be between this fire and the burning bush? Okay. Okay. God will use these men as his instrument to speak through them uh, to people in the world. Okay, I think that's a, a helpful connection. Okay, we think of something coming down resting on your head as a, a kind of anointing. Um, it was on each person too. Right. Just the group. It was each on each one of them. So, uh, again, not a sort of one glowing light in the middle of the room or, or something like that, but a divided a presence in each of them. Um, Again, we'll come back to this. Uh, some connect fire with judgment. And, of course, fire is often connected with judgment in Scripture. I think not universally so. But we have to ask, is that appropriate here? Uh, 
I find it not so helpful. Uh, what would it mean for judgment to be resting on each of these men? Um, uh, to me, that doesn't seem to fit the occasion. If it means they will speak words of judgment, you would expect the flames to be where? Coming out of their mouths, which you do also see in some biblical visions, right? Uh, uh, swords coming out of people's mouths, uh, that they will uh, speak words that divide or judge. Okay, again... Um, that works, I think, only if you connect it with the burning bush idea, right? Because the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. So these men are not burnt up as if they suddenly catch on fire, uh, but they will be, uh, and here you have that strange image from Paul, right? Living sacrifices. So um, that's possible. Uh, one thing that always strikes me as strange that doesn't get talked about much in discussions of this passage is light. Now think for a moment if Luke is trying to describe a kind of light that's illuminating each person in the room, what imagery does he have available to describe that? An oil lamp. An oil lamp which, where does the light come from? A little tongue of fire coming out of the place where the wick or the oil is. Um, so it seems to me we, sometimes we get too much caught up with the idea of fire and don't ask, what about the idea of light? Uh, and that uh, these men, these people are now enlightened. Uh, the the enlightening spirit uh, has filled each one of them. Uh, I think that's an idea worth exploring. Uh, what about the baptism of John? What John says, he was baptized with water, but one is coming who will baptize with fire. And so, I mean, this is a clear action of Jesus, uh, kind okay. of. Okay. Uh, two things are important there. One, uh, we won't actually have someone point us back to that passage until we get to Cornelius's house, which is strange. Uh, Luke mentions it in chapter 1, in the, that the, uh, well, if you turn back to that uh, in uh, verse 5, um, he reminds them, you know, to wait for the promise, because you heard from me, uh, the Lord said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's interesting that there is no exact reference that now they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and those are the only two places where you have uh, references to baptized with the Spirit uh, in the book of Acts. Um, that's surprising to most people. They think it's much uh, more common language, but that's really not uh, the typical language of the book. It does say they were filled with the Holy Spirit and connecting this passage back to Jesus' baptism by John, I think, is also important. It's 1025. 1025? Okay. So we'll wrap it up kind of with this point. Um, now, when Jesus is baptized, what happens? The Holy Spirit descends 
like a dove. So again, you have a comparison to a visible object, uh, and our artwork all shows it as if it were an actual dove coming down. Why couldn't Luke say that here? Well, it would be pretty gruesome, right? If a dove was descending and suddenly fragmented into a hundred feathers. Um, so Luke needs an image that can show something is coming down from above, but it's not just resting on one individual, it's resting on everyone present. And this idea of, of a light dividing, of flames, of a fire uh, going into individual tongues uh, works for him. Um, so it rests on each of them. Um, and we're going to have to come back, I think, next time to the, the last uh, two pieces there. Uh, something that else that happens that people hear and something that Luke tells us that happens uh, that you couldn't see or hear. Okay, Maeve. Um, Just real quickly, you, we were talking about the uh, Pentecost harvest, right? Yes. The gospel planning for next Sunday from John 7, Jesus is in the temple for the from the harvest of foods. Mm -hmm. It talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Right. Um, a very strong connection. And, uh, uh, well, I should never speak ill of the lectionary committee because they <laughs> control our lives. But, but that was a particularly good choice. Uh, Paul. Well, I was surprised at how many commentaries thought so. Um, and it got me thinking, too. And I want to come back to that, in fact, next Sunday. Because there are several sets of images that I think are informing these opening chapters. They sort of overlap. Sometimes they dovetail. Sometimes they, they contrast with each other and bring out highlights. Uh, but one set of images that I think we've we've dropped from our sort of usual vocabulary is the Exodus and how important that is for both the end of Luke and also the beginning of Acts. So let's come back to that and, uh, and what connection might be between this fiery presence of God and that fiery presence. Jim, did you have a... Okay. Uh, let's close here. Thank you again for your attention, your comments and questions. And I look forward to, to picking it up right here then next Sunday. Uh, let's close with a blessing. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This has been the Bible class from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere on KFEO.